Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. My kids, my, my sons are old enough now to invite them into sort of vacation planning. Now, they're invited to contribute, but they don't make any decisions, right? Because they're not quite that old. And here recently we were, you know, kind of talking about going on vacation and a trip. And so we asked them, we had them sitting there at dinner and I was like, so what is something inexpensive and relaxing that you want to do? And we'll do this, you know. Pick a destination, we'll Google some options, that sort of stuff. And, and so Haddon said he wanted to go to the Apple stores, um, plural, there in that town. And, and then uh, Amos wanted to go to um, this big rock climbing indoor amusement park thing uh, that they had there. And, and, and Leland wanted to go to a Texas Rangers baseball game. Jackie said something about the outlet malls. And as everybody is talking, I just thought to myself, we all have drastically different opinions of what inexpensive and relaxing is, you know? It's just different. Jack is like, well, what did you want to do? I said, I wanted to go to the city park and, and walk the well, she, What would we do there? I said, I don't know, walk and look at the city. That's what we would do, you know? It's relaxing, it's cheap, it's, it's free. It's so impossible with just our small family to, to be of the same mind to be of the same heart, the same goals. There's just five of us, but we have five completely different opinions about how things should go. We're gonna be in John chapter 17 this morning, John chapter 17. Now, in the schedule of things, we needed to jump ahead a little bit. We've been in John for several months now, and uh, we needed to jump ahead for the Easter story, but now we're gonna go back and fill in some of the gaps. John 17 is a part of a section called the high priestly prayer. He prays this before he is arrested, before he is crucified. And in that prayer, he prays for a number of things. And one of them is that his people, the disciples, those who are believers in Jesus, followers of Christ would be united, that they would have the same mind, the same mission, the same heartbeat. And that's such a good prayer. It's such an encouraging prayer. It just Honestly, it just feels impossible. Feels like there's no way we can achieve it. Pie in the sky, pipe dream, Jesus sort of prayers. It's not the sort of thing that we could actually do here in our lives. There's all sorts of things like, um, for instance, politics could be the easy target on this. We live in a country that is governed by an adversarial system. It wasn't designed that way. It has evolved that way into just two parties that seem to turn everything political, making the other side the enemy and my side the good side. You can see this when important bills are passed or our votes are taken and they'll show the votes there and one political party votes completely unanimously one way and the other one votes completely unanimously the other way. It's impossible for me to believe that that was anything other than partisan politics. It divides. It pushes us 
one side to the other. There's constant racial divide in our country just under the surface. Religion seems to be a thing that should pull us together, but we're often pushed in different directions. Most people not taking their faith very seriously. And then it seems sometimes, much to my sadness or dismay, that those who do go through this cage stage in which they're starting to take faith seriously, but then they're mad at everybody else that doesn't believe the way that they believe. Economics can create a stress in our lives that often causes us to look at others that have what we want and view them as the enemy. Very clearly, there are systemic and generational advantages and disadvantages, and yet we can't seem to navigate those differences without viewing other people uh, as guilty when they are not guilty when they are part of the same system that we were all born into. All of these stress points surround us and can at times force us to see others as enemies, like people that we shouldn't like or tolerate or help or associate with, much less that we would be united with them. And the sad reality is that a lot of those factors have seeped into the church. We carry them in in our minds and in our hearts, into worship services, and into small groups. And as church leadership, sometimes it feels like we are holding back a broken dam that threatens to rush in and flood out and destroy every bit of the community that we have built. Could we possibly, by looking at the prayer of Jesus, regain, regain some of the value of unity Could we break apart his prayer into smaller pieces and see what it is that he valued, what he prayed for, and how he prayed? And then hopefully, maybe, we could adopt that same mind that is in Christ within us. That's what we're going to attempt to do today. And it is an arduous, dangerous conversation that we are about to have. But I am sure that you and I can have this together. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at John 17. We're going to focus primarily on 20 through 23, just four verses. God, thank you for all that you have blessed us with and continue to bless us with. A multi-generational, multi-ethnic, cultural church that comes together to love and to worship you. God, I pray that we would war against disunity. We would fight it. It would be our battle to fight against those distractions that divide. And instead, God, we would lean into the reality, into your heart, into your passion for a united family, a united method, and a united goal. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but I encourage you to use what what you have there in your hands. This is what it says. Jesus says, I pray not only for these but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved me, or loved them as you have loved me. Three specific prayers Christ prays for 
not only these, those are his disciples, the people, the men and the women that were around him at that moment, but also for those who believe in me. This is a specific prayer in which Jesus is praying for you. There's a lot of scripture, most of scripture in which should change our lives by implication. Jesus is talking to someone else or God is uh, creating and establishing and redeeming and restoring. And by implication, we have uh, principles and values that we should apply to our lives. And yet this text is unique in that Jesus is praying for you. Now I could stand up here and I could say a prayer for my future grandchildren or my future daughters-in-law. And while that prayer may be genuine and it may be authentic and it may be heartfelt, there's just no way within my own humanity that I could envision or picture or know who those people will be. And yet Jesus, taking advantage of his divinity, could very easily have prayed for you right now by name, personality, location. He knows who you are. And so when we read this text, one of the very first places that we have to stop, one of the first concepts that we really have to internalize is that Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed specifically for you. So I could say it like this. I could say Christ prayed for, and then you could respond by saying me. Let's do that. I'm going to say it. Christ prayed for me. That's right. Let's do it again. Christ prayed for We could even make it more personal by removing the me and putting your name in. I could say, Jesus prayed for Josh. I want you to say that. I'm gonna say Jesus prayed for, and then you say your name. If you're watching online, if you're in the room, you do this out loud. Jesus prayed for, it's absolutely correct. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you. And three times in this prayer, in this section of the prayer, the prayer is much longer, but in this section of the prayer, he prays for unity. He says that they may be one, that they may be one, that they may be made completely one. Jesus is praying for you and that you would be united, that there would be unity in the life that you live and the Christianity that you pursue in the faith that you exemplify in this world. Let's look at it. Specifically, if you look at 21, 22, and 23, three different aspects of a prayer about you. Look at 21. It says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Now, we are so familiar with the idea of Jesus referring to God the Father as Father that it just becomes happenstance. It just becomes something that he says, something that we read. And yet, Very specifically in this text, in the prayer, Jesus uses adjectives to describe the Father, to describe God in particular ways. When he refers to Father as um, relating to himself, he just uses Father. When he refers to Father as relating to the disciples, he uses Holy Father. And then when he refers to Father as in relating to the world, he uses Righteous Father. Jesus is specifically using the terminology in order to evoke a certain idea or a certain concept. In other words, Jesus is not only praying that you would be a united people, but that you would be a united family. The terminology that he's using is familial, father and son. And so it is worthwhile. It is good. It is productive that we would pause for just a moment and think deeply, think richly about the idea of family and what that might mean to our faith, how it how it impacts the way that we live and how it impacts the way that we believe. Now, 
to begin with, one place that we have to go or thought that we have to say is twofold. And some of what I'm about to say may be insulting. It may be offensive, just depending on your mindset and how you hear it. Understand that I'm not trying to be offensive. We're trying to talk philosophical, not, um, not necessarily um, practical or in your life, but let's talk about a, a few things here. The first one, this one may feel offensive, but go with me for just a second. And it's the concept of the ideal. It's philosophical, the ideal family, all right? So in, uh, like if you were to have a child draw a picture of a, of a normal, let's say a normalized or an ideal, fa- uh, ideal family, oftentimes you would expect them to draw a picture of a, a mom, a female, a mature female, a, a dad, a, a mature male, and then a brother and a sister. It is the concept of the ideal family. Now, my family doesn't look like that. There's a mom, a dad, and then three boys, right? And the family that I'm from doesn't look like that. There's a mom, a dad, and then four boys and one little girl. And so not to say or to, to put any sort of guilt or lesser value on a family that looks different than that picture. I'm only trying to describe the idea of the picture. Okay, just the concept of an ideal, okay? This ideal. And a lot of us realize that nearly everyone that lives in our current culture and in our day walks into the room not from an ideal family. There's divorce, there's death, there's differences, there's all sorts of circumstances that build into it the less than ideal causes us to see different things, but we can all still see that even within our own world by circumstances or choices or our decisions or our things outside or within our control that we often live in a less than ideal family. And I'm not talking about just the makeup. I'm just talking about the way in which we relate to one another. And so it's important for us to know and to understand no one is heaping upon you any sort of guilt If it is that you come from a family in which the father or the dad was not a good person or the mother was not there or present or children have made different decisions, no one is doing that. We're just talking about the idea of the good family, the idea of the the, the goal family that we would all strive for. Here's a couple of thoughts to think about when we think about family and how it is that Jesus is praying that we would have a united family. The first one is that it is united, but it is not uniform. It is united. Any family that is united and loving and caring for one another is united, but it is made up of different people. The mom is different than the dad and the children are different than one another and they are different from their parents. People of different ages and genders and maturity and abilities and strengths and weaknesses. A family, an ideal family, a good family, the sort of family that we dream of and and strive towards is made up of different people. They are not uniform. And yet somehow in our culture and somehow in our minds and somehow In our churches, we have begun to believe that unity only comes when we all think and look and act and believe exactly the same. And yet even in his prayer, he is the son and he is praying to the father while they are same. In the Trinity, there is distinction. There are differences. 
And so it's not that Jesus is praying for uniformity. It is not that the goal of the church or Christianity or religion is uniformity, but it is unity. And unity by its nature requires differences. Otherwise, it's not unified. We need to have differences and strengths that are coming together. So Jesus is praying that we would be a united family, but not a uniform family. It is not that Jesus tolerates the differences within the church. It is not that Jesus just merely accepts as, a, as an evil that needs to be accepted that people are from different backgrounds and cultures and, and, and races and beliefs and, and strengths and weaknesses. He doesn't tolerate those things. He celebrates those things. That it is by which those things and through those things that we are stronger and we are better and we are more fully together. Now, the, what I'm about to say next, I mean, it's just made me like uh, nervous. My stomach hurts this morning. I got nervous. Sometimes preaching does that. Sometimes you're fine with saying whatever it is that you, feel, you plan on saying. Sometimes you just want to vomit and not, all right? And so since we're in a Baptist church, uh, we will vote on it. Um, and so all those in favor of me saying something that might offend you, uh, say aye. aye. And those opposed by like sign? Oh man, the eight o'clock had quite a few no's. Uh, they were like, no. They were grinning while they did it, but I was expecting every service to have some no's. All right, here's the other two parts that make me just nervous. Not only is it not uniform, it's united, but it is that we need the full family. You need all the members of the family. So let's, let's paint a picture here. I, I kind of think of it like a backyard house party in which the whole family's there. Grandma and grandpa are there and they are, they are functioning as grandparents do, doting, loving, accepting, right? Jackie tells a story about how when her and her sister would go over to her grandfather's house on the Cuban side, her parents would tell him, do not give the girls chocolate. Do not give the girls a bunch of food. Do not feed them too much. And he would agree. And then they would leave and he would pull out, he had a, a, a dinner table that had a tablecloth on it and then a plastic tablecloth over that one, you know, and underneath the bottom, he'd pull out these king size Hershey bars and not only give one to each girl, but then force them to eat it because he believed they needed it to be healthy and to be good, you know, and then he would fix some full steaks and force them to eat all this sort of stuff. They'd go home with stomach aches and all this kind of stuff. And every single time he would dote on them and love them and give them things that the parents told him not to do. That is the job of the grandparents. That's what they're for. They're supposed to dote on those kids. They're supposed to completely ignore all the rules and do things for those kids that they never let us get away with, you know. It's their job. And then you have parents and their job is to set boundaries and to discipline and to nurture and to lift up. And the dad is to, in a, in a, in a uh, what do we call it? A hypothetical ideal situation. The dad is to be protector and provider. He is to be strong and to be stable. And the mom is to be nurturing and caring and loving and to lift up. This is just what we expect. It is their, it's their jobs, it's their roles. And all of this is going on in that backyard party. And aunts and uncles are out there too. 
and they're celebrating and they're encouraging and they're maybe bending the rules a little bit, but you always know that even the cool aunt will take you out for ice cream and say, listen, I know your mom's crazy sometimes, but she's not wrong on this. You need to listen. I know I'm the cool aunt, but I'm telling you, your mom is right. That's what aunts and uncles do, all right? They bail you out and they help you out. That's what they do. And then you have children that are growing and are developing and they're supposed to push boundaries and they're supposed to ask questions and they're supposed to figure things out and they're supposed to get hurt sometimes, but it's okay because they have a whole community, a whole family that surrounds them and loves them and mitigates the damages and makes sure that they are okay, right? Everybody agreeing that this is, this is whether or not it's what we came from, it's what we all long for. It's all we all strive for in some manner or another. Sometimes there's not aunts and uncles, but there's like that friend of dad's that's been here forever and it's like an uncle. You know what I mean? It's just kind of the way that we strive for this. And if it were the case that a couple, a a husband and a wife were unable to have children, there would be all sorts of of remedies and and strategies and and, um, attempts to, to make it to where there are children adoption or our fertility clinics, that sort of stuff. We, we would go through all this. Why? Because we are striving towards that. We need the doting wisdom, the discipline and the nurturing. We need the affirmation and the encouragement. We need the struggle and the pushing of the boundaries. That's what the backyard house party would need to be ideal. And yet, The church so often doesn't look like that. It doesn't even feel like that. Oftentimes it feels like the generations are at war with one another, that the older cannot tolerate the youngest, that there's always this constant struggle to force and to push the youngest into some sort of younger version of the values that were once held. And that music and dress style and all of that needs to line up exactly with the way that grandma and grandpa believed or else it's wrong. And the younger generation feels as though they are not doted upon or respected or accepted. We also need male and female. You need mama and daddy standing in the gap and saying that this is the way that it is supposed to go. In no world is it healthy. In no world is it good in which there is a family in which children are being raised by this authoritarian, um, uh, sort of like overbearing, my way or the highway sort of dad who doesn't listen or care or respect the opinions of the mom. We would all agree, or we should all agree, that that's not healthy, that's not right. And yet oftentimes the only voices in churches are male voices. It's the only voice that gets brought up in leadership or in respect and has nothing to do with scripture just has everything to do with opinions that have been held for a long time. And then there are sadly some churches that you go into their worship services and there's not children crying in the middle of the service. There's no need to bring, uh, to have uh, nursery care workers. There's no budget for the student ministry because there's no children. There's no younger generation and they cost a ton of money and they break things and they disrupt stuff and they run through the halls and it is good and it is healthy and it is the way it is supposed to be. Sometimes there are not these small groups that come alongside one another that says, listen, you know, your dad, he's kind of, I know he's being rigid and I know he's mad. That's because he loves you, but he's right. He's right, I'm telling you this. 
There are people sitting in this room right now that have taken my own kids out and sat down across the room and told them, this is going to be good. This is going to be okay. It is, it is a tragedy, an embarrassment, an abuse that churches don't look like what it is that we strive for. Not only because that's what he prayed. He prayed that we would be a united family with all of the generations. But also because we all know deep down we long for that. We want that. We crave it. And yet we refuse to offer it to other people. And to run in our roles and to behave the way we are behaving. I understand that right now I'm in the dad phase of church life. I get that. And I do desperately look forward to being the grandpa phase one day and just be doting and just be encouraging. But we all have to run in our circles. We need the full family. We need everybody fully invested and everybody needs to act like we are supposed to be acting towards the rest of the generations. And when you think about family, we need that sort of blood is thicker than water sort of commitment toward one another. Let me say, this is my family. I will not bail. Look, you can run out on your family. You can pretend and refuse to fulfill your responsibilities as the dad, and you're still the dad. You're just a bad one. You can run out on your family, and you can walk away and pretend that you are no longer the brother or the sister or the daughter or the son or the aunt or the uncle or the grandma or the grandpa. You can pretend you are not, and yet you are. You're just a bad one. And while I can't think of it, while I can't imagine, maybe it has happened, but in all of my two plus decades of full-time Christian ministry, I can't think of a single time in which somebody left a church that I was at or that I heard about, in which they left a church, walked out on their responsibilities, walked away from their commitments based on some sort of doctrinal, heavy, weighty matters. It is, I'm gonna say almost always, even though I can't think of an example where it's contrary, almost always some preference or something that wasn't met that they wanted, that they just walked out, just walked away from their commitments. Walked out like it's Kroger or like it's the country club. Walked away from family and left behind hurt and pain. And then we wonder why the next generation isn't attaching or contributing or fulfilling. We need the full family and we need to be committed to each other. About a week ago, I wanted to watch a Western Sometimes I just get in the mood to watch a Western, you know, a good Western. And I couldn't find one on any of the free services uh, that I already, well, I say free, I already pay for them. And so I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna buy one or rent one. I ended up watching the Hatfields and the McCoys. Y'all seen that? It's like a nine hour miniseries. It's really good, really good. And uh, I watched it in parts. Y'all like, what did you, you just sat there for nine hours? No, I watched it several days. It was really good. And it caused me, like within 20 minutes of it, I had to stop and then read everything I could online about the Hatfields and McCoys. I was so confused about all these characters and what was going on. And we use the phrase all the time. I say Hatfields and McCoys. And you're like, oh, disagreement, that sort of stuff. But it was like a, a, a 30 year fight in which 12 people lost their lives, were murdered by the other family. Seven people ended up in prison. One was executed by the state. And this huge fight is a very 
evil example of exactly the good that I am talking about, in which there's this deep-seated commitment to the family. This is my family. I have crazy aunts and crazy uncles and, and, and uh, brothers that I don't understand and, and children that I'm not sure about, all this sort of stuff, but it is my family. We just don't see the church like that anymore, right? We don't, and it's sad. All right, so the next two points are not nearly as, probably won't make you mad. 22. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one, a united family and a united way. Now I know there's a united way out there, the organization, I'm not talking about that. It was just the best word I could go. Maybe a united method, all right? A united family, a united method, a united manner, the way that our family operates. Now, he says, I've given glory. And to be honest, in this little short part, portion, glory is the hardest word to wrestle with and to understand. But thankfully, John gave us some information at the beginning in the prologue. John 1.14 says, And the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, family, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus talks about glory and passing that on and giving that to other people, he's talking about something that John explains in at least three aspects. One, it is observable. You should see it. It is actions that other people can see and other people can observe. Like John observed Jesus and it is grace and it is true. It is graceful and it is true. Grace is the way in which we love other people, other different people, other people that get on our nerves, you know, like family. It is the way that we show grace to other people, unmerited love towards other people. And truth is standing on principles that matter. What is right? What is true? Listen, I am unapologetically a conservative biblical Christian, not conservative politically. I'm talking about conservative the Bible. I'm conservative Christian. So I say without any equivocation that I do truly believe there are two genders. There's male and there is female. And that is ascribed biologically by birth. I also believe truly with everything in me, and I know this is online, I believe with everything in me that, that marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. And anything outside of that is against his will. I believe that. I think we should believe that. And I think we should live that gracefully. I think we should be loving and kind to other people, even if they purposefully disagree with us. They have thought it through, they have made up their own minds and they disagree with that. That's fine, I'm still gonna treat them with love and with grace. And there's a large percentage of people that didn't think through it. There's a large percentage of Christians that just grew up Christian. There's a large percentage of anti-Christians that just grew up that way. I'm telling you, we're never gonna win anybody by treating them disrespectfully or rudely or unkindly. That's just not how that works. It has never in the history of anything ever worked that way. So we will stand on principles. Well, I can't really tell you what you're going to do, but I will stand on principles and I will do it in a loving and a gracious, the best I know how. Full of grace and truth. It is just the way that we are. It's the way that our family should operate. When I was six, I became a Christian in a, in a little Baptist school. My parents weren't Christians. 
Later, my brother became a Christian. My brother, my mom prayed for my dad. My mom became a Christian. My dad became a Christian. So from the age six, seven on, I grew up in a Christian family. And when my parents went Christian, they went like all in head first, all right? Super like legalistic, fundamental Christians. We like joined a cult, all right? And um, we did that. We were all the way in there. And uh, so I was raised in a pretty Christian family. About the age of 11 or 12 or so, I went to spend the night at one of my uh, elementary schoolmates' house. His name was Franklin. Franklin was a cool kid. And uh, we, I stayed the night at his house, one of those first like sleepover type of things. And in the morning, his mom made pancakes on a griddle on the, on the table. It was like, we were like in a luxury hotel or something like, I was so amazed. My mom never did that, you know? And so there's this pancake, she's making them, just putting them right on the plates. And then we all sat down and then they started to hold hands. And my family doesn't hold hands when we were praying. And so this is the first time I didn't know other families. Maybe your family holds hands while they pray for the meal. And I'm sitting there thinking with everything in me, I am not holding Franklin's hand. I'm just not going to do it, you know. And, and Franklin's sitting right here, I'm an 11-year-old boy. He's an 11-year-old boy. We were pretty sure Jesus didn't want us to hold hands, you know. And we're sitting there and, and he's looking, he's got all this like moms looking at him like, you will hold that hand. This is a family, all that kind of stuff. So he stuck his hand out like, and I'm like, <laughs> spirit of unity in that was enough. And we prayed, it was just different. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing good with that either. It's just the way that their family did it. There are certain things that your family does and my family does that are not the same. Certain ways that we do this or certain ways that we do that. But this family, this Christian family, we stand on what the Bible says and we offer it graciously. That's the way that we are. It's just the way we are. It's the Christian way. So we have this united family. He's praying for you. He's praying, I pray that you would be in a united family. I pray that you would give grace and truth to other people. And then finally, you'd have the same goal. I am in them and you are in me. That's an, in, that's an indwelling so that they may be made completely one. So that what? So that the world may know. So that the world may know. That the end goal is that the world will know. In verse 21, he already said, so that the world may believe. Now in the Bible, the world, that phrase, you gotta read it in context. Sometimes it's talking about the evil system of this world that is anti-Christ, that is anti-God. Sometimes it's just talking about the globe. You know, God made the world, you know. He's got the whole world in his hands. But here it's just talking about the people, the orphaned, the outside, the lonely, the searching, the ones that need a family. Everybody outside of the family. They're not our enemies. They are just as much in need as we were once in need. And they need to know and they need to believe. Nuances there in 21 and in 23. It says that they will know when we tell them. We found out because someone told us and we have to pass that on. Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans 10, 14 through 17 this way. He says, but how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do this? Jesus says that he was the one sent. And then he turns around and says, all authority has been given by God, the Father, to me in heaven and in earth. And I am sending you. Go and tell them. 
This is what we do. We are a united family. We have grace and truth and we go and tell them so that they will know and that they will believe. Where we live in this setting, in this city, in this region, many people do know. They know about Jesus. It's just that they do not believe and they don't believe for many reasons. One of which is that we are not living it out. Christians fight with each other all of the time over silly stuff. And it is not a good, uh, it doesn't lend credibility to our message. Unity, according to Jesus, is the greatest apologetic. John chapter 13, verse 34, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. We have constantly remind ourselves and each other that the other people knowing about Jesus is the goal. That is what we are trying to do. It is our mission. The 16,000 college students that Christ, God by his providence have brought to the doorsteps of this campus is the reason we exist. We are here to share the gospel with them. The thousands of families that live in Faulkner County that are struggling, that are living their lives. Some are not struggling. They're living very happy, very successful lives. It's just apart from Jesus, they are the mission. That's the reason. That's why. It's the heartbeat of what we do. We might be tempted to do any other, no, any other number of missions. For some, we are tempted to preserve the past and to keep things the way that they once were in the good old days, in the glory days. But the glory days are ahead. They never were in the past. We might be pulled towards the goal of safety to make sure that we get everyone we care about in here and away from those scary ideas and thoughts and people that make us uncomfortable. But we weren't ever supposed to huddle up. We were supposed to go out. We might start to think that the goal is our own power and our own influence. And so we politic and triangulate to work to make sure that we are well liked in the community or at least we are feared like we are a voting block or a controllable purchasing power. We are not, we are a family with a mission. We could be tempted to think that our own comfort is what matters. And so we only wanna spend money on things that we will enjoy, not on what others might need. Why should we pay for something that they will worship in? Why should I care how their house is or how their community is? This is about me and my comforts. We can be tempted and it's not we Second Baptists, we just as Christians, everybody can be tempted to go in these directions or any other directions. And what Jesus is praying, is it so that they will know and believe in Jesus? That's the whole goal. That's the whole point. Just this last week, we had to call a small group leader. There was a, there's a small group uh, meeting in a, a room and we needed them to move rooms. Their room, the room that they are meeting in would be best used by another ministry in our church. Less fortunate, more needy group of people. And you would think that calling somebody them and telling them that sort of thing would just be easy breezy. No problem, but it is not. Oftentimes we call and we ask small group leaders to do stuff and they will not. This is their room. 
This is the room they've always had. At this time, it's close to this or close to that or it's better in this way. They will not give this up. So we asked Jeremy Smith if he would move his room and without any sort of hesitation, he gave up his room. He led the way that he is supposed to lead. That's a unified goal. That's truth, that's grace. We didn't even have to tell him what the other ministry was that needed it. But then when we told him, it was all the better. So that is Jesus's prayer. With you in mind, with you he prayed that you would be a part of a unified family with a singular goal and one manner of accomplishing that goal. He prayed, so what should we do? Two things we should do. The first one is you have to, you have to fight against disunity. Just sitting, you will slide toward division. We are, we are raised, we are surrounded, we are conditioned to fixate on what is different in other people, to constantly make divisions amongst us. And you have to fight against that. You have to fight against the idea. You have to willfully take every uh, thought captive and destroy it that says, they are not my enemy. Sin, death, Satan, those are my enemies. These are my brothers, my sisters, and those who need my father. You have to fight against it. And one of the ways that you can fight is even right now, right now in the next few moments, you could bend your knees at your chair or at these steps and you could pray for your church. Prayer is not inactivity. It's not wishful thinking. It is action. You can pray for your church. You can pray for your church's leaders. You could pray for those who sacrifice and serve. You could pray for those who volunteer within our church to make sure that ministries are done. And if you do not serve or sacrifice or, or, or volunteer, then you can pray a prayer of repentance and apologize to God and then start doing that. You can pray for those who need to hear the gospel, that their hearts would be open, that their minds would be open to hear the gospel as we go out and we share the gospel with other people. And then you can pray for other Christians, other churches in our community, like Summit and New Life, First Baptist, Grace Presbyterian and Fellowship Bible. And you can pray that they would be strong, that they would be good, that they would be clear with their message and that they would succeed at what we are all trying to do so that the world will know and believe in Jesus. One evening a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago, Jackie and I are sitting in our bedroom and we're chatting and Leland busts into the room and he, and he starts to say, dad, you need to come, y'all need to come out here quick. There's a bird caught under the basketball goal and you need to come, you need to come get it. And I, I looked at him, I said, I think you need to go get the BB gun. And he looked at me for a few seconds, just a few seconds of silence and he goes, I don't think I do. Just like that. <laughs> That's exactly what he answered. And I was like, okay, all right, let's go see. So went outside and uh, I envisioned this bird caught like in the net or something like that. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was a bird caught under the goal. But it turns out that the post that was uh, bolted to the ground uh, is hollow. And there was a bird all the way at the bottom of that. And you could get down on the ground, you could look through the little crack through the bolts and you could see his little tiny feet there. And he was all the way at the bottom and every few seconds he would try to fly, but the post was too narrow. He couldn't spread his wings enough to get the lift. And so he couldn't get out of there. So he was stuck. Somehow he'd fallen all the way down in there, he or she, you know, and somehow he'd fallen all the way down there and, and he was stuck. I can't tell 
on birds. And so I, I was down there and I was looking at it and I was like, boys, listen, I love you. And I was raised just a little rougher than we we're raising them. And I was like, nature's just gonna have to run its course. It's just the way I, I mean, and I wasn't trying to be heartless or anything. I was just like, we can't get that out of there. And it's sad and it's tragic, but we can't. And, uh, and Haddon looked at me and was like, I don't care if you're helping or not. We're getting that bird out of that post. Everything in me believed that he was about to take my truck and back over that post. <laughs> and so out of love for my truck, I decide I'm gonna help him, right? And I'm trying and we're thinking about things. And, and so we had decided if we get like a little, a little like a Tupperware or something, we attach something to it, we could run it down that post and maybe we could scoop it or somehow we could maybe give it enough. Maybe it would go into the, and I could pull it back up. So I get this ladder out there and I'm up at the top of the post and I'm looking down the post and there are bolts all the way down the post that are holding the actual goal to the post. There's no way, there's no way I can get this post. And so again, from the top of the ladder, I'm like, guys, listen, there's nothing we can do. Already, also, I've already showered and I don't really want to get sweaty, you know? And so I'm standing up there and I'm looking at this. I'm just like, I don't want to do this. And listen, I don't want, I don't want a bird to be heard. I don't want a squirrel to be heard, anything like that. I'm not like, not completely heartless is what I'm trying to prove. But it's like the people that the more they say that, the more you're thinking, yeah, you're heartless. But I was like, there's nothing we can do. I can't unbolt that thing. This thing is super heavy. It'll be dangerous, all that kind of stuff. We'll end up in the ER with one of you hurts to save the bird. I'm not gonna do this. And then in an unbelievable act of betrayal, Jackie took their side. <laughs> so it's just me against four. So what am I gonna do now, you know? So it's like, fine. I go in there and I get my ratchets and my wrenches and uh, WD-40, because I don't know how this thing's gonna go. And I get out there and I take two bolts completely off and loosen these two bolts. And I get up to the top of the ladder and I'm holding the weight of this thing. I'm gonna try to lean it back without it going too far. Haddon, my oldest is underneath it. He's going to help you get it. And then Jackie's gonna scooch that bird out of there, but not with her fingers. We don't wanna lose a finger. We're just like, she took this hammer and just kind of like slowly pushed him out of this sort of thing. And in a, in a moment, it felt like it all happened at the exact same time. That bird flew out of there and right up to the top of our house and then looked down on us like, you are now my master. I will serve you for all of eternity. That's what I felt he said to me, but maybe not. We pushed that thing back and I wish you could have heard. Wish you could have heard. Yeah, that's right. I wish you could have heard. Uh, my boys and my wife, they all cheered like, like, yay! Like it was like, like this, giant expression. And I was like, oh goodness, you know. But listen, that's how a family does. It's how our family does. It's what we do. And I think a lot of you would as well. There was nothing in this old guy that wanted to save that bird, nothing. But with their passion and her compassion all combined together, I had what they didn't have with my knowledge and my strength, with their passion and her compassion, all worked together to save the other. That's how a family works. And that's what we are supposed to be doing. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family.
Thank you for listening.